Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a White Claw. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a pina colada, and we're continuing our serial killer theme in this week's episode with the Bloody Benders, a family of American serial killers. After the Civil War, the Osage Indians were forcibly moved from their home in Labette County, Kansas, to Oklahoma in order to make the Kansas State Territory available to European settlers. In 1870, five families of quote-unquote spiritualists settled in western Labette County. One of these families was the Benders. John Bender Sr. and his son John Jr. arrived first and registered 160 acres of land located adjacent to the Great Osage Trail, which was then the only open road for traveling farther west. John Sr. was thought to be around 60 and his son about 25. Thought to be German immigrants, John Sr. spoke very little English, while his son spoke English well and had a German accent. A year later, in the fall of 1871, when a cabin and barn were built, John Sr.'s wife, Elvira, who was 55 and went by Ma, and 23-year-old daughter, Kate, arrived. Elvira spoke little English and was so rude to the neighbors that they nicknamed her, quote-unquote, she-devil. Her husband and son were said to have feared her as she ran the household with an iron hand. John Jr. and Kate were both said to be attractive and social, which allowed them to be easily accepted into the community. John Jr. had a habit of quote-unquote laughing aimlessly, which led many to think he was mentally ill, though some now wonder if this was an act. Kate spoke English fluently with no accent and was said to be the friendliest of the family. She was a self-proclaimed healer and psychic who held seances, claimed to cure illnesses, and gave lectures on spiritualism. She advertised her services in the community and some called her behavior quote-unquote satanic. Kate also outspokenly advocated for free love, which was uncommon at the time and gained her attention. No one in the family shared much information about their lives before settling in the area. The Bender's home was a one-room cabin that was split into two spaces by a canvas. In the back were the family's living quarters, and the front was converted into a general store, kitchen, and dining table where travelers could stop and shop for dry goods, a meal, or even a night of rest. Keeping mostly to themselves, the Benders appeared to simply be struggling homesteaders who worked hard to earn their living like the other area pioneers. Some of the male travelers, who frequently carried large sums of cash with the intention of settling, buying stock, or purchasing a claim, began to go missing. When friends and family began to look for them, they could trace them as far as Big Hill. They could trace them as far as the Big Hill country of southeast Kansas before finding no trace of their lost traveler. In May 1871, the body of a man named Jones was found in Drum Creek, southeast of the Bender property in what would become Montgomery County, with his skull crushed and his throat slashed. The owner of the land in Drum Creek was suspected but never arrested. Then, in 1872, the bodies of two more men were found. Each had similar injuries to Jones. These first few missing travelers did not raise an overall alarm in the area. In the winter of 1872, George Longcourt and his 18-month-old daughter, Marianne, left Independence, Kansas in search of a new life in Iowa. They were never seen again. Longcourt's neighbor, Dr. William Henry York, who had sold Longcourt horses and a wagon for the trip, 
was notified when they had been found abandoned near Fort Scott, Kansas. By 1873, numerous reports of the murdered and missing on the Osage Trail soon spread through the region, and travelers began avoiding the route. The following spring, Dr. York began a search for Longcourt and Marianne. He questioned homesteaders along the trail as he made his way to Fort Scott, where he identified the wagon and horses as those he had sold to Longcourt and clothes found as belonging to the father and daughter. On his return trip to Independence, Dr. York stayed at the Bender Inn. He was not seen or heard from again. Dr. York's two brothers, Colonel Ed York and Alexander M. York, a member of the Kansas State Senate, organized a large search party for their brother when he did not return home. In March 1873, they tracked him to the Bender Inn. In this initial meeting, the Benders denied any knowledge of Dr. York and suggested that the traveler may have met with foul play at a remote location near Drum Creek, where John Jr. claimed to have been shot at around the same time as Dr. York disappeared. Without any proof they were involved in his brother's disappearance, Colonel York had no choice but to leave. On April 3rd, Colonel York returned to the inn with armed men after being informed that a woman had fled from the inn after Elvira Bender had threatened her with knives. Elvira allegedly could not understand English, while the younger Benders denied the claim. When confronted, Elvira began yelling in English that the woman had cursed her coffee and eventually kicked Colonel York out. Before Colonel York left, Kate offered to help him find his brother by using her psychic abilities and asked him to return later that week. While this was going on, neighboring towns began to accuse the Osage community of being responsible for the disappearances. To address the issue, the local township held a public meeting in the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse in which the community agreed to obtain search warrants for every property between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek. Colonel York, John Bender Sr., John Bender Jr. were all in attendance. A few days after the town hall meeting, Billy Toll, a neighbor of the Benders, noticed that the Bender Inn was abandoned and their farm animals were unfed. Toll reported the news to the township trustee and a search party was soon formed, which included Colonel York. When the men arrived at the property, they found the cabin empty of food, clothes, and personal possessions. They noticed a terrible smell coming from a trapdoor that was nailed shut beneath a bed. Underneath the trapdoor was an empty room where they found the smell coming from clotted blood that had soaked through the stone floor into the soil below. Not finding any bodies, the search made its way to Elvira and Kate's vegetable garden apple orchard, where they would find Dr. York buried in a shallow grave. By the next day, at least 10 bodies have been recovered from the garden and well, along with additional dismembered body parts. The victims had all been hit in the head, likely with a hammer, before having their throats slit. This was evident on all the victims' bodies, except Mary Ann Longcore, who was likely buried alive or strangled. Many of the bodies have been quote-unquote indecently mutilated, possibly suggesting genital trauma. 
The burial site was christened, quote-unquote, Hell's Half Acre, and Dr. York's brother Alex offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to the Bender family's arrest. On May 17th, Governor Thomas Osborne added to that amount by offering a $2,000 reward for the apprehension of all four. Detectives followed wagon tracks to find the family's horses who had been abandoned outside of Thayer, just 12 miles north of the inn. Word of the gruesome murder spread fast and thousands of people flocked to the site, including news reporters from as far away as New York and Chicago. The Bender cabin was ripped apart by souvenir hunters right down to the bloody bricks that lined the cellar. Bit by bit, the story of the Benders was pieced together. Based on the information shared by survivors of the Bender Inn, it is believed that guests were given the seat of honor at the dining table, which backed up against the canvas room divider and was positioned over the trap door to the cellar. Then Kate would begin to charm the men with her social skills, flirting or revealing her psychic gifts. Once their victim was sitting and focused on Kate, one of the men would knock the visitor out with a hammer from behind and push them through the trap door into the hole below the cabin. There, Elvira and Kate would then rifle the body for money and eventually slit their throat. The body would later be buried or dismembered. Though some victims were wearing valuables or carrying cash, many were not, which indicates that the benders killed for the thrill, not for the money. Around a dozen bullet holes were also found in the cabin, likely from victims who tried to fight back. One of the few items found in the cabin was a Bible with notes in German, which identified John Jr. as one John Gebhardt. This, as well as reports from neighbors, suggest that John Jr. and Kate may have actually been a couple instead of brother and sister. It is now believed that none of the four were actually named Bender and that only Elvira and Kate were related. Elvira is thought to have been born Almira Mark in the Adirondack Mountains and to have had 12 children and multiple husbands. It's believed she killed her husbands and three of her older children in order to cover up her crimes. Kate Bender was her fifth child and was actually named Eliza Griffin. John Sr. was likely born John Flickinger before immigrating from either Germany or the Netherlands. What happened to them next is not definitive, but there have been many eyewitness testimonies. While on the run, the benders supposedly purchased tickets for a train headed to Humboldt, Kansas. The train's conductor said that John Jr. and Kate disembarked at Chanute and took the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas railroad train south to the Red River country near Denison, Texas, which was then the end of the railroad. Allegedly, the pair then fled to a tough outlaw colony along the border of Texas and New Mexico, where John Jr. eventually died of apoplexy. Meanwhile, Ma and Pa Bender continued on the train north to Kansas City, where it was believed they transferred to a train headed to St. Louis. Law enforcement and vigilante groups were after the Benders. Many made claims of tracking the family down and killing them, but no stories were ever confirmed and no reward was ever taken. Accomplices to the benders were taken into custody, though. Twelve men were charged as accessories for helping dispose of the stolen goods. This included Mitt Cherry, a member of the vigilante committee, who it was later revealed forged a letter to a victim's wife that made it appear as if he'd arrived safely. 
For years, sightings of Ma Bender and Kate were reported, and in 1889, two women were extradited from Michigan on the charge after a woman named Elmira Monroe had accused her adult daughter, Sarah Eliza Davis, of larceny, specifically of having stolen a frying pan, some pewter plates, and a pair of infant stockings. Though the pair were jailed and tried, the case was dropped for lack of evidence. Of the 16 witnesses brought to the stand to identify Ma and Kate Bender, seven were positive that they were the Benders. Seven were equally positive they weren't, and the remaining two couldn't come to a definitive conclusion. John Sr. allegedly died by suicide in 1884 in Lake Michigan, but others believe that Ma and Kate murdered him because he had fled with all the cash and valuables they had taken from their victim. That same year, an elderly man who investigators said matched the description of John Sr. was arrested in Idaho for a murder committed with a hammer. While waiting for more details from Kansas, the man tried to escape by severing his foot. He bled to death and decomposed before an identification could be made. The search for the benders continued for over 50 years, but they were never found. Some will go on to primarily blame Kate for the murders, since many historians believe that her public speeches and looks are what brought travelers to the bender end. Other corpses found in the area and the many mysterious disappearances of other lonely travelers led the locals to believe that the Benders killed more than 20 people. People began to say that the Bender property was haunted. At this point, all that was left was an empty hole where the cellar used to be. There have been reports of glowing apparitions on the property. In 1961, the Bender Museum was created in Cherryville. In honor of the Kansas State-wide centennial celebration, an exact replica of the Bender cabin was built that housed antiquities, antiques, and household items. Over 2,000 people visited within the first three days of opening. In 1967, three of the Bender hammers were gifted to the museum, and the museum remained a popular tourist destination until it was closed in 1978 when a fire station was built. Though many wanted to relocate the building, it became a controversy in Cherryville, with locals objecting to the town being known for the Bender atrocities. In the end, the artifacts, including the hammer, photos, and newspaper clippings, were placed in the Cherryville Museum and can still be seen today at 215 East 4th Street. In addition to the museum, Southeast Kansas may be the only place where a state historical marker celebrates mass murder. While not actually on the old Bender property, the marker sits on the high prairie about a mile northwest of Bender Mounds at the U.S. 400 and U.S. 169 Interchange at the Montgomery County Rest Area north of Cherryvale, Kansas. Del, what are your thoughts on the Bloody Benders? This is a wild story that I was not familiar with prior to recording, and I think it is one of the most up and down stories that we've covered. One, just the fact that they weren't actually related to each other for the most part, besides Elmira and Kate, and they just came together as this 
diabolical family that all agreed to murder people is insane to me. It's also their brazenness that gets me because they weren't just killing travelers whose families may or may not have expected them to return home in a timely fashion. They were killing people that very quickly it would have been found out that they were missing and they would have other people looking for them. I think one of the things that comes along with a lot of killers is their arrogance. And that's definitely evident in this case where they kill a guy and his daughter and then they kill the person that is looking into it and then have the nerve to sit at a town hall where they decide, well, we're going to search everyone's house and they just are on the run. I don't know if I believe all of the stories of, you know, supposed suicide that came from it. I definitely think that they likely live for a lot longer than what is being reported. I think the most interesting thing is that they put a lot of the blame on Kate, but without having spoken to them. I don't think that we will ever know exactly what happened and who did what during the murders. I don't know how important that is because I think they're all equally responsible. I just wanted to point that out because it's very rare that you just single out one person of like, oh, well, Kate was the attractive one and brought the people in and apparently seduced them and apparently slit their uh, throats. And apparently was the one that rifled through their pockets. It's basically trying to decrease the culpability of everyone else that was around them. Like they were just sitting there watching Kate and her mother murder people. It's very strange to me. What are your thoughts on it? You bring up a good point about there's so many questions in this story. Why were they really doing this? I know it kind of looks like it was just for fun and just to do it to do it. But how did these people get together? How did they find out that this is something they wanted to do? Again, what you said, one of them more forceful. Did one of them plant this idea in everyone's head? And then the bigger question too, what happened to them? You don't I think in a lot of these stories, we, we're used to having more answers, especially modern stories. So for something like this to be so kind of open-ended is unique. I don't think those two women from Michigan were Elvira and Kate. I think that they would have known that people were looking for them. And to accuse Kate, you know, if this was Elvira and Kate, to accuse Kate of something so trivial as like stealing a frying pan plates and stockings. I think frankly, she probably would have just killed her if she was that pissed off. We saw that there's a rumor that she killed her husband's and several of her other children. What would really stop her from killing Kate in this instance? So I'm on the side of the seven witnesses that didn't think it was them. I think it's also interesting too. And we talked about this with our Jack the Ripper episode, the public frenzy, because this is really 
one of the very first in America where we're talking about serial killers. I mean, this is probably the first time anybody had heard of a family of serial killers. It's still not common today. I think when we talk about these cases from like the 19th century, we have to keep in mind too, there was not a lot going on to entertain people either. So for something like that to happen, I think it's wrong, but I understand why people wanted a piece of the pie and to get in on it and to visit. I do think it's weird though, how Kansas has kind of made it a part of their history. I just looked up the marker and there's only one sentence about the victims. And I don't think unless it was in the fine print at the bottom, it doesn't say anything about like memorializing the victims or trying to list out their names or any details about them. And I I know not everybody was named. And unfortunately, some people couldn't be identified because they were so badly dismembered too. But I think that's really bizarre. And I I do agree with these people being unhappy about the museum and saying, why do we want this town to be so known and attached to something so violent? I know we've talked about Salem in the past and how they've kind of embraced that as part of their history and how the town that feared sundown, that area in Texarkana, how they've sort of embraced it too. But I understand the Cherryvale citizens not wanting to have this part of their history. It's really complex. And it was a wild ride looking into this and definitely not what I expected. I think like what I said, the biggest thing that gets me is how did these people even find each other? It's so bizarre. So I would love to know more. I would love to have more answers. Yeah, I think that you see that with a lot of sites of famous crimes where Either the town embraces it and they try to kind of put a modern twist on it, which I do think adds to people being desensitized to the horrors of what happened. And then you have other towns like Cherryvale that want to be completely removed from it. It's like, we do not want any sign that a horrific crime happened within our borders. I do think that there can be a happy medium between the two extremes where you are acknowledging the history that happened at a place, but not uh, creating an atmosphere where it looks like you're celebrating it. The Benders lived on the American frontier, which was the perfect place for their crimes. Let's look at the climate and culture of the quote-unquote Wild West. Slate.com said that the Benders' crimes were, quote, intertwined with the founding narratives of the American West, a place where Anglo settlers saw a future rich with possibility, with few structures related to class, family background, or law to hinder them, end quote. The Wild West is considered to be the Rocky Mountain states like Montana to Texas and then across the Wild West is considered to be the Rocky Mountain states like Montana to Texas and then across to the West Coast. The time period is typically the 1850s to 1900. At the time, most of the terrain was pre-statehood, which meant there wasn't much federal oversight. Terry Anderson, professor emeritus at Montana State University, said, quote, 
The lack of a centralized government is partly responsible for our collective imagining of the Wild West as a rowdy and fierce place to live, end quote. He went on to say, quote, the Hollywood version shows anyone and everyone fighting over water rights and lands. But what we discovered is that in reality, people understood the negative consequences of fighting and instead found civil ways to resolve their disputes, end quote. Private organizations impose rulings on land beyond the government's control. Cattlemen's associations, mining camps, and wagon trains upheld social norms of civility and moralism and meted out punishment when those norms were betrayed. Throughout this time, the land under Native American control shrank and so did their freedom. Congress passed the Indian Appropriations Act in 1851, which enabled the creation of the first reservations where American Indians were forcibly relocated and prevented from leaving without permission. As per the Homestead Act, any federally surveyed plot of land was available to settlers willing to live on it and develop it. These plots were called claims. Stories of farmers and rugged self-reliance depend on forgetting the Homestead Act's appropriation of indigenous land or the almost constant need for federal soldiers to enforce that appropriation. In reality, the West was a lot tamer than it's often portrayed in popular culture, but certain areas did have dangerous undercurrents of violence. There were pockets where powerful authorities maintained order and innocent people were killed. People died or vanished all the time on the frontier, either from the elements, getting lost in drowning mishaps, or simply walking away from their old lives to reinvent themselves. Parts of the Wild West were much more violent than the eastern states, especially in places where gold and other minerals were discovered. Crimes like murder and physical assault weren't uncommon. Typically, if resources were plentiful, like land for cattle grazing, people were more likely to come to some sort of nonviolent arrangement. But if the resource was rarer and more valuable, such as precious metal, people were more prone to violence. A majority of the violence towards the end of the 19th century came from the systematic extermination of the Plains Indians. The U.S. Army cut a bloody path through Indian territory that white settlers and railroad corporations were able to follow. Though around $1,800 million was paid by the U.S. government to Native American tribes, that money was just as quickly funneled back into white hands through corrupt policies and loopholes. Author Chase Pleats said, quote, no longer would they seek peaceful relations with indigenous peoples whose occupied land deemed valuable by the government or the railroad corporations they were in bed with. As a result, an era of violence more horrific than most popular Western narratives would care to admit left the territories drenched in blood, end quote. So what are your thoughts on this, I guess, misunderstanding of the Wild West. And do you think the Benders used their location on the frontier to their advantage? I definitely think it's understandable that there is a misconception about the Wild West and what was happening. I think a lot of people in modern times associate order with 
governmental oversight and other things like an organized police force. So when you hear of a time and a place that doesn't have those things, it's very natural to think that it was just chaotic and a lot of damage was being done to all people. I don't know if the vendors necessarily used the location to their advantage. I think it was more so they used the lack of modern technologies to their advantage. For example, they were able to kidnap people and be basically assured for the most part that no one was going to come looking for them because there weren't a really easy way of communicating with people and letting people know your location, letting people know things went awry, the ability to share information about group of people that are dangerous was also limited. So I think that instead of someone going to the vendor and escaping and being able to share that across something like Twitter you were forced into a situation where people were basically going in blind. I think one thing with the Wild West and media, again, that I wanted to mention is that, unfortunately, that happens a lot with atrocities against minorities, where in the general public's view, things weren't as bad. I don't think that as a country, we really have wrapped our head around all the atrocities that were committed in the name of us being a common people, one nation. And I think that what happened in the Wild West with the Native population is just one example of that. What are your thoughts? I agree pretty much with everything you said. It is really atrocious to hear everything that Native American people have gone through and how just everything was stripped from them, from their land, their rights, their culture, their language, all of that. And in the name of advancement and taking land and what you said, pretending we're like a united front, the othering of indigenous people still happens today. And I think you're right. People don't really understand then and now what these people had to deal with and really the the erasure of them as literal human beings, but also their stories and the harm that was historically done. I think you make a good point too about the technology. And we've said this before, so many of these crimes I feel like wouldn't have happened or would have been found out sooner if we had modern technology. I mean, the vendors probably would have been caught if we had modern technology. You know, if someone saw them on this train, it would be so easy to then call the police and notify them. More people would probably have known what they looked like too. I don't think there are any photographs of the vendors. I've seen drawings and that's it. And that can really only go so far too when you're looking for people. And yet just the information not being spread as quickly I was kind of surprised to hear that the West is not as wild as it's portrayed in culture. I often think of like, I think I still would not want to ever live during that time period because the idea of traveling out West and like roughing it sounds horrible to me. But the lawlessness that we do often think about is really scary. And to know that it wasn't as widespread is kind of nice, I guess, widespread to certain groups of people, you can say. But 
I mean, there's a point in like no one, the Hollywood version, no one wants to watch a movie where people civilly resolve a land dispute or the Cattlemen Association comes together to do something. That's not entertaining. And you know, if we're going to put some critical thinking hats on too, we've talked about the plight of Native American people. It's probably to Hollywood advantage and whoever is in charge's advantage to continue making Native American people look bad and like villains in these movies, which is pretty much always what happened. The fact that a lot of people did go missing during this time period on the frontier, I think that the vendors did use that to their advantage a little bit. And I mean, from the mind of a criminal, I don't really blame them for that. And who knows if that was their intention moving out there who knows if that's like something that came to be. I mean, I would think starting an inn just in general on a road, the only road like out west, you would make like a good amount of money and have maybe even like repeat customers, like word of mouth helping you out. Again, people didn't have like TripAdvisor or like Google reviews back then. But I think they used that element to their advantage for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a very good point of how... Had they just went with the kind of capitalism angle of things, they could have probably made so much more money than they got from robbing and murdering travelers just because of where they were located. So I definitely agree that that, you know, creating an end on that trail was definitely an advantage. But honestly, I think they like you had mentioned before, kill more for the thrill instead of money. So the location was used more to make sure they had a steady stream of victims coming through. Yeah, I don't want to give any serial killers credit, but I mean, they were smart people. And, you know, if what they wanted was to kill people, then they planned that out well. As we mentioned, Kate and several other families in the area were spiritualists. Spiritualism taught that the spirits of the dead continued to live on after death. And spiritualists often practiced seances to contact these ghosts. Spiritualism was very popular in the 19th century and started in upstate New York. The movement spread across the country. Mediums could be found in just about every town in the U.S. at the time, and many traveled across the country sharing their abilities and making a profit. The ideas of Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century philosopher, had already begun to change people's concepts of heaven from a faraway sterile place to a more perfect version of earth where the spirits of loved ones live on. Many gravitated towards spiritualism because, like traditional religions, it believed in the immortality of the soul. Unlike traditional religions, it did not call for blind faith. Skeptics could see concrete quote-unquote proof of an afterlife by attending a seance. Spiritualism also rebelled against traditional religious authority and instead emphasized quote-unquote radical individualism. It was also one of the few religions at the time where women were seen as equal. Being a psychic medium was one of the few ways that women during that time period could speak in public, and many used this platform to spread suffragist and abolitionist messaging. Spiritualism was called a quote-unquote scientific religion because it, quote, asked participants to observe spiritualistic demonstrations produced under test conditions in a seance room, end quote. At the time, people were getting used to new scientific discoveries and how they played a role in religion. 
early spiritualism attracted respected professionals like the physicists Marie and Pierre Curie, the evolutionary biologist Alfred Russell Wallace, and the psychologist William James. As the Civil War began and casualties occurred, many turned to mediums to contact their loved ones and get peace. Grieving families took part in seances to say their final goodbyes and receive a message from their loved ones who perished on the battlefield. There was also a high child mortality rate at the time. By the end of the war, a reported 11 million people subscribed to spiritualism and 35,000 were practicing mediums. Spiritualism was also believed to have healing powers. Spiritualist doctors needed only to wave their hands, mesmerize their patient, and restore their health. Although there were people who genuinely claimed to have psychic abilities, many turned out to be frauds, like the Fox sisters, who were some of the most well-known mediums. In 1901, secret catalog called Gambles with the Ghosts was even available to mediums and offered ghost figures, fake ectoplasm, self-playing guitars, and a self-writing slate. One of the biggest enemies of the spiritualism movement was Harry Houdini. Houdini attended many seances but found no concrete evidence of communication between the living and the spirit world. He felt that mediums were taking advantage of people grieving their loved ones and were a quote-unquote insult to his profession. He even debunked Nina Creighton, one of the most famous mediums of her time, and testified before Congress in support of legislation that would have criminalized fortune-telling for hire. Houdini promised his wife, Bess, that when he died, if possible, he would send her a message from beyond. Bess held seances on the anniversary of Houdini's death, but he never came through. She finally stopped in 1936. 10 years after his death, but the tradition lives on today. Del, what are your thoughts on the spiritualism movement? Where do I even start with this one? <laughs> I find them all to be frauds, and I agree with Houdini wholly that they are taking advantage of people who are grieving. I think that the thought that you can contact someone who has passed on is ridiculous. I definitely understand where the grieving family is coming from, and I sympathize with them, but psychics, mediums, fortune tellers, and everyone else in that lot belong in jail to me, and I wish that the laws had passed. Going back to just in general how it got started, the fact that they even tried to pretend that they were akin to science is ridiculous. One thing about science is that you can verify it over and over again, and that's how it gets accepted. Spiritualism has none of that. You going in and claiming that a seance room has test conditions, I can't. I think that spiritualism in general is a money-making scheme, especially when you bring in the psychic elements that these people supposedly have. I Definitely understand why some people may want to rear away from traditional religions, but I don't think that spiritualism is the way to go. And I definitely think, again, that it just attracts the 
type of people who are okay with looking at someone's grief and asking themselves how much money they can make off of this person. What are your thoughts on it? I was familiar with the spiritualism movement beforehand, but I never knew what I guess the contributing factors to it becoming so popular was. And I think we often think of like the 19th century as a really button up, strict, very like Christian, Catholic time period. So for me, it definitely didn't make sense that people would be so interested in it. But hearing about this philosopher and so many people grieving from the Civil War and not being able to say goodbye to their loved ones, it really makes sense to me. I do believe that some people do have spiritual abilities. I don't believe everyone that says they do does. And I do agree that I think this movement, it probably started with good intentions. I mean, I will say the Fox sisters who are kind of started with like giving this movement credit were like 11 and 14 years old when they started this. And then one of them came forward and said like, we're, this is all fake. So they were children. So I'm going to cut them a little slack, but adults doing this and knowingly taking advantage of grieving families, like you said, Del and what Houdini felt is wrong and unacceptable. And I'm sure it was so much more easy to get away with at the time, but people do this now all the time still, whether it's psychics, mediums, there's other things too, where people, you know, there's scamming is always going to be around and it's really upsetting to see how it manifests and does take advantage of vulnerable people. I think Houdini being so against spiritualism is really interesting and that the fact that he saw it as an insult to his profession, I think is so interesting too, because he really was working hard to bring these illusions to life and to make people think. And I'm sure some of these spiritualists were too, but like we said, there were also magazines and catalogs that were truly selling stuff to trick people. And I mean, I guess you could say like magic and what Houdini was doing was tricking people too, but he wasn't taking advantage of anyone for missing their dying son or husband or something like that. And I thought it was also very strange that this was considered a scientific religion too. And just the fact, I guess, that so many people said, oh, well, we can prove it because of a seance and all the stuff that happens. And I mean, I would call that kind of blind faith too. They said it was not traditional because it there wasn't really relying on blind faith, but we now know that there are ways to, you know, like rig seances, but people at the time, I guess, just didn't really fully understand that. So again, taking advantage of this ignorance and having like a one up, a leg up on these people as a whole. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the bloody benders. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Axemen of New Orleans. As always, stay safe.